Oh, good morning to you. We pray that you had a great week and you have a greater week even coming ahead of you. And so that the Lord can really demonstrate his love and his glory to you. You know, sometimes God's people often uh, share that they need spiritual revival. Very seldom anybody comes up to you and just says, wow, I'm on top of it for God. You know, I'm just, me and God are just like that, you know, and, and all that. very seldom people ever do that. I, I don't know why, but it seems to be the case. And so if you go up to people and you say, do you think you, you would, you know, we need a spiritual revival? Most people would say, yes, we do. Somehow we've fallen into some complacency and we've fallen into some apathy. And so people would say, yes, we need revival. They sense that their own personal relationship with God and their faith is wanting. Uh, hence the call for restoration and revival. I was looking around for some sources that would help uh, articulate or describe this kind of feeling. Because I couldn't do it myself. And so I came across this article written by a Mr. Derek Gentle. And this is in his article on revival. He describes the situation this way. He says that... When they, uh, God's people need revival when they have left their first love, when they find themselves going through the motions, when they are wallowing in sin, perhaps regretting their sins but unwilling to thoroughly repent of them, when they are neglecting their relationship with Christ, when we are low on zeal and have grown lukewarm. That is a very descriptive <laughs> description of what it is to need spiritual revival. And so you ask yourself, well, what is spiritual revival? If, if I ever experienced it, what would happen? Well, in their book, Fresh Encounter, Blackaby and King write this. Revival is a return to spiritual health after a period of decline into sin and broken fellowship with God. Revival is for God's people when they need to be forgiven and restored to life, spiritual health, and vitality. It almost sounds like a commercial for an advertisement for vitamins or something. But it's that kind of feeling. It's that sometimes I think most of us as believers, especially those who have been believers for an awful long time, is that somehow we've neglected our soul, we somehow have let our relationship with God decline. And so we are greatly in need of this restoration, this revitalization, if you will. But how does spiritual restoration and spiritual health happen? How is this rekindling of love for God? And how is this overwhelming consciousness of uh, sin uh, uh, and repentance come about? It doesn't come about by just us sitting there passively, but it is something that grows on us. It's something that God brings into our life, and he helps to nurture it and fuel it so that it turns into something that we would call a spiritual revival. Now, as we've been discovering from the life and times of Nehemiah, God brought about revival through a project and through prayer. That's how he did it. That if, if it's good enough for Nehemiah, don't you think it's good enough for us? <laughs> okay, he brings that's how he did it in the life and times of Nehemiah. So let's see how this all works out. Let's return to the book of Nehemiah, please. And so in the book of Nehemiah, we find that one of the greatest revivals ever recorded of God's people is penned for us and then recorded for us. And so to help get us into this, we have to go back to where, investigate where we have been and see where we are going. Nehemiah, as you can tell by now, is divided conveniently into two parts. 
two halves. And the first part is verses, chapters 1 to 6, is the physical rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And then in chapters 7 through 13, the spiritual rebuilding of God's people. Now, notice here, first of all, that God uses the rebuilding of the walls as a way of starting his people on a spiritual journey of faith. And he does this by uniting them around some very important practical purposes, okay? Think about it. Remember when we picked up the story in Nehemiah chapter 1, and he gets a report from his friends, and he uses the words, they are in great distress. They are under reproach. They're looked down by their neighbors. They're scared out of their minds, and they're barely making it through. And Nehemiah breaks down in tears and goes before the Lord. If you had to summarize it, the people of God were without any pride. They were without any protection. They were without any purpose. They were really in deep need. But notice here that there were some very physical requirements that were being met. The people were just emotionally, the people were physically under duress. And so it was not a happy place. And so that's where it all picked up. And then when we get to chapter 6, what happened there? Well, the walls were completed. And it's significant that it was done in just 52 days. That's pretty amazing. That's without any modern bulldozing equipment, trucks and communications and all of that stuff. And all the while, while the enemies were making fun of them, they were threatening them and all kinds of things like that. Now, if you think about the parallels between ourselves as Grace Baptist Church at this particular time, the parallels are really uncanny. For example, for us, The roof is leaking, okay? As you can tell, sometimes the sound system doesn't work so good, okay? And all kinds of things are breaking down. There is a physical need, all right? And God seems to be doing something around us that somehow is going to dictate that we're going to have to probably improve and maybe increase our particular uh, facilities. The MRT that's coming up, the, the, the fact that uh, there's new housing coming up just up the road. There'll be this huge development called Badari, so on and so forth. God is doing something. God is saying to us, you better do something about it now because you ain't going to be able to do it later. And so things like that happen. So physical needs begin to surface. But the point is that God used this project as a start for his people on a spiritual journey of faith. And what is a spiritual journey of faith? Well, a spiritual journey of faith is where God's people will have a chance to see God as they've never seen him before. They will have a chance to seek God, perhaps, as they never have before. They will have an opportunity to depend upon God like they never have before. You see, that's all part of a spiritual journey. That's all part of the spiritual journey. And so when we look at this, the project, the need brought forth a project, but the project was really, in God's mind, a start of a spiritual journey, a spiritual adventure for his people. So, rebuilding the walls, erecting a building, whatever you want to call it, is more than just a simple exercise. It is a spiritual journey of faith, an adventure with God. And we need to remember that as we go about these things. God doesn't sit out there and just says, oh, what should I bother the people of GBC with this week? You know, he doesn't do that. But he has a purpose in mind. He knows what we need and he gets in there and he gives us what we need, albeit perhaps in ways that we don't quite understand or suspect. 
And so this is what God is doing. And so he does this through the, the, his children and through the leadership of Nehemiah. Well, we got past chapter 6. We got past chapter 6. And now we come to verses chapter 7 and 8, like we covered last week. And what we do is we see God's people beginning to be moved. And they're moved in a slightly different way. How? Well, Nehemiah takes a census. And at first, you might say, Oh, he's just counting heads. He's just counting heads. No, 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 no. What he was doing is he was gathering data from people and says, what tribe, what family did you come from? Who was your great-grandfather? Who was your grandfather? Who was your father? Who was your aunts and who are your uncles? And as people began to think, oh, gee, yeah, I remember great-grandpa came from here and grandpa came from here and, you know, so on. So my father was this, my father was that. And he went through the exodus. He went through this. And, and by the way, God did this during the exodus. And people began to remember. There was slowly a rekindling of God being active in the life of their families and in their people, amongst their people. And then... There was the reading of God's word in chapter 8. Who could forget that? The first time that the word of God had been read in decades. And suddenly people began to, there's slowly a, a, a spiritual inkling began to, 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 to creep in. And people began to say, wow, I, I didn't remember this. I, yeah, I vaguely remember my father or my mother saying this or my rabbi saying this, you know, and, and, and stuff like that. But then they, they would, the priest saying this, and then suddenly they would say, ah, it's beginning to come back to me. It's beginning to come back to me. Then there was a whole new generation who said, I never heard this before. I, I, I'm totally out of it. I did not understand this. And this is what was happening in chapter 8. Chapter 8 ended with what? The people discovered, they rediscovered the feast that God had installed among God's people. The purpose of the feasts were for God's people to remember the highlights of God in the acts and events of their nation. And so when they began to celebrate the feast, it was not just a paid holiday. What it was, was that it was a remembrance of God. And then we leave chapter 8, people said they were so happy. They were so much enjoying the fact that now they were beginning to remember what God had done. So you begin to see this happen. God was beginning to rebuild into the people. He was beginning to restore to them a God consciousness, if you will. And so that brings us to chapter 9. That brings us to chapter 9. And so we have to ask ourselves, what happened in chapter 9? What was so, what was so significant about chapter 9? Well, as you look at it, it was a time of preparation. But it was a time of preparation that led to confession and worship. Okay? Now, we don't have time. There's 38 verses. There's no way we can read all 38 verses. And so what I'll do is I'll pick out key verses that maybe summarize the thought for us. Okay? But I encourage you to go home and read the entire chapter of chapter 9 of the book of Nehemiah. So, in chapter 8, Ezra and his assistants were reading God's word and making people, making sure people understood it. And this was the first time that God's word had been read since the time of Joshua. So many, many, many decades have passed since that time. And then they launched into this party atmosphere with the feast, like I mentioned earlier. And, but then the feast, they began to turn very serious. How serious? Look at verse 3 of chapter 9. Verse 3 of chapter 9. 
while they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of a day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. You see, the reading of God's word, the movement of the Holy Spirit using God's word suddenly began to bring up a spirit of worship and confession in the hearts of the people. And you'll notice here that this happened over several days. This happened over several hours. Okay? Now, you think I'm (laughs) long-winded. You think these services are long. Imagine these people sitting for as much as three to four hours at a time. Okay? Okay, be thankful. You weren't born in Nehemiah's time, I guess you could say. All right? But that's what happened. And what this teaches us is that it takes time for revival to happen. It does not happen quickly or easily. God uses different events in our lives to start us on this spiritual restoration of of our souls. You see? And so some people say, well... You know, Pastor, you've been uh, you've been preaching. This is what the ninth sermon of this thing. You know, I still don't feel revived. Well, you may not until after chapter nine, maybe after ten. I can't tell you when it's going to happen. All right, but I hope it will happen. I believe it can happen, and I believe it will happen if God's in it. But the point is, it takes time for revival. So don't look for one specific moment. All right, it may happen, but probably not. It's going to happen over a period of time. Revival comes over a period of time and sudden and seldom does it happen suddenly. So that was the first thing that happened in in a kind of a paraphrase. The second thing that happened was a time of prayer. And this is verses four through thirty eight. I'm just giving you an overview here. The prayer, the the prayer can be divided up into two parts. And the prayer basically reviewed first part of it reviewed the past. It reviewed the the past. And this is Verses 4 through 20. And so, as they prayed, they recounted the journey of faith God took the nation through. And during that time, they discovered a lot of different things. They discovered, they, re, they went through the history again of the majesty of God. And then they talked about the calling of Abram. In, in uh, verse 6, for example, you see this alone about the majesty of God. You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven and of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them and the heavenly host bows down before you. And so this is an example of what they began to see again as God. And then they recounted the calling of Abram. If you look at verse 8, the first part, you found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him. Can you imagine if you were a Jewish person at that point? And maybe you weren't up to date on your history, okay? And suddenly you began to hear, wow, this great and magnificent God who rules and created the heavens. He made a covenant, a promise to our ancestor, Abraham. And then they recounted in verses 9 through 20, the events of the great exodus out of Egypt. Verses 9 and verse 11. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. You heard their cry by the Red Sea. Look at verse 11. You divided the sea before them. So they passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground. And their pursuers you hurled into the depths. 
it says, like a stone into raging waters. You get the point? You get the point? That as they began to pray, they began to get this fix on what God had been doing in their lives. And then, verses 21 to 31, they saw the patience of God. They saw the patience of God. As you look at verses 18 through 19, 18 and 19, you see this. Even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal and said, this is your God who brought you up from Egypt and committed great blasphemy. You, in your great compassion, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud did not lead them by day to guide them on the way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. Boy, how patient was God. He was patient enough that when they turned around and made a idol, a metal idol, he turned around and he says, I'm still going to provide for you. What an amazing God. What an amazing God. And so when you see these things happening, you begin to, to, to get a feel that God was stirring within them a hunger for this kind of God. I want this kind of God. I want this kind of God that has, has such a strong track record. I want a God like that. And they began to thirst more. But also you began to see, if you read that whole uh, passage, 21 through 31, a pattern began to emerge. What was the pattern? This was the pattern. There would be sin on the part of God's people. Then it was responded to by grace of God as God would meet their need. Then what happens is the people fell back into sin. Sin, grace, sin. Sin, grace, sin. Over and over and over and over again, if you read that particular passage. There was distress and then there was deliverance. All right? Now, you say to yourself, that sounds awfully familiar. Well, it should. That's almost a description of our lives, isn't it? Isn't it? What happens is we get into distress, we cry out to God. God, please deliver me from this. Get me out of this. You know, make it make the things all good again. And then perhaps the cycle is sin. We fall into sin. We walk away from the Lord. We rebel against the Lord. And then we finally realize that our sins have consequences, terrible consequences. And in desperation, we call out to God again. Please deliver us from our sin. God comes through. He delivers us from our sin. Then what happened? Ah, one week, two weeks, a couple of days, a couple of hours. What happens? We fall back into sin. It's just like we never knew God in the first place. That's why it sounds so familiar to us. Because what happened to the children of Israel also happens to us in our daily life. If you look at Romans chapter 6, this is Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. This is what the great apostle Paul had to say about the cycle and of, of taking advantage of God's grace. He says in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? You see? So God's mind and heart is not sin, grace, sin, you know, distress and deliverance. That isn't his plan for us. He wants us to live continually in fellowship with him. 
And so this becomes very important to us. Again and again, God's goodness to his people is rewarded by their rebellion. And so as they continue to pray, also the prayer began to reveal the present situation, the present situation. And this was found in verses 32 through 38. So what happens in verse 32, back to Nehemiah chapter 9, what you see and what you hear is this. In verse 32, and it says, Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and loving kindness, do not let all the hardships seem insignificant before you, which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, and our priests, our prophets, and our fathers, on all, on all your people, for the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. And what happens is that people call out to God for deliverance again. They find themselves in a real fix, and so they call out to God. This time, though, they confess their sins before God. Look at verse 33. However, you are just in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. And so what happens is that God proceeds on. He's so steady. He's so consistent. And he comes through again for them. God's people cry out for deliverance from their distress in verse 37. And then in verse 38, they make a covenant with God. And we'll go over this covenant more in chapter 10. But you get this point. The point is it went through the past. And the past was so, was so important to them to see how God had been faithful. And then they went through the present situation. I said, look, lo and behold, we find ourselves exactly in the same situation. In exactly the same situation. And we need to call out to God. And then even more so in verse 38, we're going to make a promise, uh, an agreement with God. So that basically in a nutshell is what happened. There was a time of preparation through a project and then there was prayer. Overall, that's what happened. But hidden inside, hidden inside is something that's very precious. Hidden inside are important lessons for us to learn about prayer. Important lessons to learn about prayer. What is the first lesson? Prayer helps you to see God in a fresh way. It sees God in a fresh way. How many of you have heard um, very mature, senior, senior believers, we'll call them, okay, who pray? And when you hear them pray, they always start out with what? They always start out with a praise of the Lord. Lord, we thank you, da, 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 so on and so forth. Now, at first you might say, well, they're just being biblical. That's the way we were taught to pray, you know, in God's word, okay? Yes, but more so than that, it is a way of identifying God and to raise him up and to identify him. So when you go into this prayer and you open it up, you discover in the early verses that they painted a picture of God that is very clear and very unique. I put them all up for you, and you can go back to them later. They pointed out in verse 6, he's the God of creation. Verse 7 through 8, he is the God of grace. In verse 9, he's a God who answers prayer. In verses 10 through 12, he's a God of deliverance. Verse 15, He's a God who supplies. 
in verses 17, 19, 27 to 28, there are examples of God of great compassion. You see, when they began to pray these things, they realized what a great God he was. And his compassion is demonstrated by his mercy that he shows them and he shows us. If you look at Titus chapter 3, Titus chapter 3, verse 5. This is a powerful, powerful verse. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And then on to verse 6, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And then in verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, at first you say to yourself, What's the big deal? Well, my wife and I had the privilege of going on a mission trip. And we went to Peru. We went to the great country of Peru. And lo and behold, we found that the people of Peru, as opposed to other places in North America, (laughs) for example, where people are not so interested in things of God. So we would go door to door. And we began to to witness to these people and share with them our testimony and what God had done. And we were just shocked that people were willing to listen to us. And even more shocked when people accepted Christ as their Savior. We were even stunned when they said, come back tomorrow because I have relatives. I want to hear this. My goodness. My goodness. You see. And we found out later the reason that they were so interested In the gospel of Jesus Christ, salvation by faith was because they had been brought up to believe salvation comes by works, by works. And what happened is we shared with them Titus chapter 3, verse 5. And it says in there, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done. And you could just see the relief off of their faces, off of their shoulders, as they realized they were not having to earn their salvation through works. But rather, it was through faith. And that's why it was such a powerful, powerful message. And today, it is the same. As people pray and they begin to realize that their faith is based, their their salvation is based upon faith and not of works, they are moved by that. And so this is what happened as they prayed, that they discovered God afresh and anew. The more you go over the historical record of God's dealings with his people, you see a picture, one picture after another of God's compassion, faithfulness, goodness, and loving kindness towards his people. In verse 31, in fact, of back in Nehemiah, verse chapter 9, verse 31, it says this, In summary, nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. Wow, what a summary statement there. And so this was all coming, uh, uh, this was all being revealed. Now, we ought not to think God as a softy. We ought not think of God as a softy. We ought not to think of God as a gigantic soda water machine. You know, where we just put in the money and out pops whatever we want. Because do remember 
that God did judge them, that God did permit them to go into captivity in verse 27. So what does this mean for us? People have different pictures of God. Ancient, some see him as an ancient and angry God, or maybe even worse, a God who stands on the sidelines like a waiter and just waiting to fulfill every dream and desire that we have. And those two extremes don't hold. They do not hold. And we need to be careful of that very thing. There was a story told one time. One of our seminary professors, he had a ministry among very well-to-do people in Dallas. These were executive types. And he said that a banker got up to give his testimony in the class. And he says he grew up thinking of God as the bellhop God, okay? He was the one that, you know, you snap your fingers and he's right there, you know, giving you everything that you ever wanted. And so he treated God that way. He would summon God and he would uh, tell God what he needed. But all this changed when he was caught and convicted of bank fraud and sentenced to prison. And there in prison, he had time to reflect on all the blessings of God and his own sinful rebelliousness against God. And in some ways, I'm not saying we should be put in prison, but we need somehow to get to a place where we can reflect on the goodness of God and reflect on our own rebelliousness against him. See, for, for revival to come, you must see the goodness of God in your life in the midst of heartaches and hardships of life. And prayer helps you see that. Think about the ways God continues to bless and sustain GBC over all these years. When I first came back in 2009, people took me aside and they said, do you know anything about us? And I said, well, a little bit. Tell me more. And they would tell, begin to tell me of the difficult times that the church had at the beginning and how they were able to, uh, to save and sacrifice and come up with this building. And then they talked about the great split and other things that were very painful. But they would tell, And I sat there and I listened and I said, wow, you guys have been through a lot. You all have been really through a lot. You have been rocked by severe challenges and events. Yet here you are still striving and serving the Lord. And there's got to be a reason for that. It's the faithfulness of God. And God continues to do that even today. And so we got to remember. It's sort of like it being the spiritual life is sort of like a boxing match. And you have met, you've take, you, during the course of the fight, you can take many hits. But you still keep fighting on. You keep sharing the gospel. And you keep living the gospel before the world. So go to God in prayer. And see God afresh. And in fact, ask God, God, if it pleases you, please show me and let me see you like I've never seen you before. May I see your goodness in our life. May I see again afresh and anew the gracious and merciful God that you are. That's one way. Another way that it teaches us about prayer. Prayer helps you to see yourself. It gives us a picture of our own sinfulness before God. As Ezra prayed, look at what sins began to surface. In verse 16, there was arrogance and stubbornness. In verse 17, there was a refusal to listen. In 18, there was idolatry. In 26, there was disobedience. All of these things came to bear. All of these things came to bear. 
And these prayers helped them to identify these areas in their own lives that were similar to the lives of their forefathers. The sins of one generation uh, to the next are not all that new. They might be disguised differently, but they are still sin. And so God's people recognized their sinfulness as they prayed, and they were driven to do something about it. This was the point of verses 33 and 38. Look at verse 33 uh, 33 and 38. And it says, However, you are just in all that has come upon us. You have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. Then verse 38. Now because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. We are downright serious about this. They were ready to do something about it. Well, you might sit out there and you say, hmm, interesting list. Arrogance, refusal to listen, idolatry, disobedience, you know, and all this kind of stuff. But might there also be other sins out there? Of course. If you, wanted to, if you need a list, if you need a list, you can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In fact, in fact, Paul goes up there and he says the, the, that we should remember and learn from the mistakes of people ahead of us. In verse 6, he mentions lust. He mentions lust. In verse 7, uh, I mean, let's start there. Stop there. He mentions lust. Now, this is not just in the area of sex. It's not just in the area of sex. I know that's what we normally think about, all right? But that isn't also, it's also in a bigger way. It's being careful not to desire an unhealthy way which God doesn't give us, okay? It's to look at things in an unhealthy way. And it's to desire these things in an unhealthy way. And so sometimes that's what happens in our lives. We lust after things that are not good for us. Idolatry, again, is brought up. Being careful to set things, a thing or a person above God in terms of loyalty, devotion, allegiance, and service. Immorality can take all the different kinds of forms. And then in verse 9, unbelief. And then chapter 10, verse 10, rebellion. Rebelling against God's appointed servants and leaders. These were all things that were common. And you say to yourself, wow, the list is pretty big. (laughs) A lot bigger than I thought. Yeah, it is. And so it behooves us to do what? It behooves us to learn these lessons. There's a famous quote that says, those who do not learn from the lessons of the past are doomed to repeat them. And that's true. We continually do that. Alan Redpath, he wrote one of the classic commentaries on the book of Nehemiah. If you've never read it or had it in your hands, you might want to get a copy of that. It's a classic. And in one part, he, he, he offers up questions that he asked himself about dealing with sin in his own life. And, he, you know, he, had a, he has a very, <clears throat> he has a gift for getting right to the point and making things simple. He says, when I think about sin in my life, he says, I ask myself two questions, two questions. He says, what about my relationship with man, with others? Is there the least suspicion of hypocrisy in my life? Am I honest in all my words and acts? Am I reliable? Can I be trusted? Do I Do I pass on confidentialities when people are telling me these things in confidence? Do I grumble or complain in the church? Am I jealous, impure, irritable, touchy, or distrustful? 
Am I self-conscious, self-pitying, or self-justifying? Am I proud? Do I thank God that I'm not as other people? <laughs> I thought that was a killer, that one there. Thank God I'm not like these guys, you know. He says, he looks upon that and he says, if I go back and I can answer these questions and there's fault to be found, he says, I have sinned. And then the second question he asks, what about my devotion to God? What about my devotion to God? Is the Bible alive to me? Do I give it time to speak to me? Am I enjoying my prayer life today? Am I involved in the problems in, in when I am in a problem in life? Do I use my tongue or my knees to deal with it? Wow. Wow. Am I disobeying God in anything or insisting upon doing something about which my conscience is very, very uneasy? How do I spend my time? You see, we can test ourselves, folks. It's not that hard, okay? It's not like going to the doctor where we can't diagnose ourselves accurately. But we can do a pretty good job of diagnosing our sinful situation by just asking two simple questions. What is my relationship with men? And what is my relationship and with God? And if you do that, if you do that, you'll come away with a more accurate picture. If we wanted to bring this home, we could say to ourselves, what is God doing here at GBC? Well, he's thrown us a project, if you would, a proposed rebuilding of GBC. But people might have different opinions about the building program. They might. They do. Too big, too small. Too early, too late. You know, so on and so forth. Okay, it goes on and on and on and on and on. But you know, in the bottom, the bottom line, at the end of the day, I'm trying to speak Singaporean. At the end of the day, what really matters is what does God think about this? Okay? And what God thinks about this is he says, this is the start of a spiritual journey of faith. Okay? He wants us to depend on him more. He wants us to... To, to, to seek him more. He wants us to serve him more. He wants us to sacrifice more for him. This is part of the spiritual journey. A means of the building program then becomes a means of building God's people, bringing them to the point of seeing God fresh and anew. It becomes a means of purifying God's people of sins that so easily beset us and occupy us, such as idolatry and such as pride. You know, they have a way of doing that. <laughs> you begin to weed through all the junk in your life, and you begin to realize you have to make choices. And these choices aren't always easy, but they are going to be, they mean well, and they will lead us to a life of holiness and submission to God. I have to close. But basically, revival begins when we seriously pray. Reviewing the goodness of God and recognizing our own sinfulness and shortcomings. This is not a happy prospect for those who are uh, uh, of the rebellious nature, okay? Because we prefer our own way. Isaiah chapter 53, 6 says, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. That's our tendency, folks. That's our tendency, if I had to summarize it this way, the battle cry of fallen humanity is, I did it my way. Remember that song? 
Remember that song? Those of you who are my generation, you'll know that song. Okay. Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. He won a lot of awards and made a lot of money off that song. But that is a battle hymn for fallen humanity. I did it my way. But may I suggest to you that with spiritual revival brought on by prayer, we can have a new anthem in our revived souls. I do it God's way by trusting and obeying him. Whose way are you going to do it? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. Now, Lord, we pray. Oh, Lord, the great and awesome and mighty God that you are. Help us to be your people. Holy and submissive to you. In Jesus' name, amen.